Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 115, Learning from Mistakes with Mark Graben. I wish I was perfect. Wouldn't it be great to simply not make any mistakes? In the practice of lean, we really try to mistake-proof our processes and build on our previous learnings to prevent mistakes. And yet, we know that we learn so much when we do make mistakes. Mark Rabin has been exploring with all kinds of people how they have benefited from their mistakes. He joined me at the Ages of Lean to talk about what he's learned from those conversations and his new book, The Mistakes That Make Us. Mark Graben, welcome to the Ages of Lean. Bella, hey, it's great to be back. It's wonderful to have you back, Mark. And I would love for you to introduce yourself to anybody who doesn't know you. Um, there might be one or two people who don't know you. And um, if you could tell us a little bit about your new book. Yeah, well, thanks, Bella. Um, my name's Mark Graben. I have focused on lean management, if you will, sharing my career in lean manufacturing, you know, back in, in the mid nineties, I'm an industrial engineer. Um, my career took a, a bit of a shift, um, a very major shift into healthcare, uh, in 2005. I, I, I guess I, I, at the moment, I wasn't sure if that was going to be a quick detour into healthcare or it's, it's been kind of a, a career shift, even though I still work with, um, organizations and, in other industries, but nowadays, um, I, I guess I would, use labels like um, consultant, coach, author, speaker, podcaster. You know, I'm fortunate to be able to do a lot of things um, under my own banner. Um, I, I quite often subcontract through other um, other firms. I, I have a longstanding relationship, uh, part-time role with Kinexus, a software company um, for, for continuous improvement. So people can see the connection there. So, you know, I've written... Uh, my name is on six different books, either as author, uh, co-author on two, uh, an editor and contributor to one. And uh, my fa uh, ah, the, I made a mistake. The new book is the mistakes <laughs> that I make mistakes all the time. Uh, the new book is the mistakes that make us cultivating a culture of learning and innovation. That's my um, third solo book that I've uh, written and and published. And that came out of your podcast. Um which, um, well, which came out of another podcast. So, so can you tell us a little bit about that pathway? Um, how did how did you get into the mistake culture world mm. from the lean world? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all it's it's kind of interrelated and and interconnected. Um, I, I, my, the mistake I almost made in a minute ago was um, referring to that podcast, which is called My Favorite Mistake. Mm -hmm. I almost um, did it too. Yeah. I, and, and there was all kinds of discussion around whether the book should have the same title or a different title. I think doing a different title for the book, I, I don't think that was a, a, a mistake. But, um, you know, so that I started that podcast, my favorite mistake, in you know, first released episodes, end of August 2020. It was a pandemic project. But my interest in, in mistakes actually goes back a lot further. So, you know, with my uh, working experience with uh, with lean, you know, mistake proofing is, uh -huh. you know, I think a well-known component 
um, of that methodology. So that's something I've tried to apply uh, in manufacturing. There's a huge need for it uh, in healthcare, um, opportunity to, to mistake-proof processes that, that protect patients from harm. And then there's a, you know, there's a cultural piece where mistake-proofing can prevent the workers, and this would include nurses and surgeons and other frontline value-adding professionals in, in healthcare, to protect them from being blamed and punished for systemic mistakes. So that, that's been a big part of my work. The, the book that I mentioned that I was uh, editor of is a book called Practicing Lean, where uh, you know 15 other people um, wrote chapters, uh, including uh, Jamie Flinchbaugh, who I, I believe you know, mm -hmm. Bella, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, some former uh, Toyota people or Toyota trained people. We all wrote uh, a chapter, and 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 the prince, the the spirit of it here was to to share a story you know, from the first year or two of your career, the, the early days of your own lean practice, if you will, and, you know, kind of just share, like, you know, here's a mistake that I made. Um, looking back at it, you know, I wish I hadn't, you know, knowing what I know now, uh, uh, you know, I wish I hadn't made that mistake, but, um, you know, celebrating the learning and the growth and, 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 and serving as a reminder, including to myself, to be a little bit more understanding and to be kind when somebody who's new to lean makes a type of mistake that if we're willing to remember it, that we might've made um, back in the day. So that, that book in a way is an exploration of, of mistakes and growth and learning from them and, and trying to be kind to yourself and to others. And so that's, that, that, that started you then on that, that, that pathway. It, uh, it's very interesting to me, Mark, that, in order to mistake proof, you have to actually know that mistakes have been made, right? Or, or at least but, anticipate that they're possible. Oh, yeah, or anticipate that they're possible. But I want to focus on on, on the first aspect, which is which right. is when mistakes get made. My experience has been in a lot of cultures that when people make mistakes, they don't talk about them. They get covered up, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Sometimes people will cover for other people. And this is something right. that I've seen a lot of where you, when you, you kind of go through a process and you're trying to identify the rework and you find that some of the rework in the process is somebody knows that somebody else is making a mistake earlier in the process mm -hmm. and they don't do anything about it. They just fix that just fix mistake, it. right? Mm -hmm. So why do we not talk about the mistakes and you know i think you know everybody sort of knows that the answer is that it's not safe to talk about mistakes right right right, right. And, sadly and, yeah. sadly and you know that that comes from a lot of a lot of different places mm -hmm. when you go when you're working with an organization and you are you know working with leadership and with management and with supervisors and you know however you you separate all of those people out how do you start that conversation with them about how what they do can actually result in rework and mm -hmm. and dangerous situations um and it's about how they behave right it's not yeah. just yeah yeah i mean i think for that conversation to really go anywhere, you know, to be invited to have that conversation, you, you've got to have leaders who I think already have some inkling about the role of systems, 
they, they, you know, the, their, their role as leaders and, and how that influences culture. Um, you know, cause you know, like you're saying, Bella, a lot of the way people react to mistakes is, is driven by their past experiences or their fears or of, of what might happen or, or both. And in a lot of workplaces, it's really been demonstrated, unfortunately, that mistakes lead to punishment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that punishment is counterproductive. Um, you know, I've heard so much somebody. Uh, did nothing to improve the processes or the systems or the equipment. And then you, you you hire somebody else and and it's a matter of time before that new person makes that same mistake, perhaps. But um, I, I think, you know, there's two main reasons why people don't speak up. And, and in the book, you know, I cite some research from a, a professor, Ethan Burris, you know, it says, you know, the two main reasons employees choose not to speak up in a workplace are like you've already touched on the fear factor. You know, they're, they're, they're afraid or they know, you know, they're going to be punished. The second factor I think is interesting um, is, is what uh, he, the, he uses the word futility. So I think of, you know, a futility factor where I've heard people say in some workplaces, I'm not afraid to speak up. It's just not worth the effort because nothing happens, right? So this is sometimes what goes into that never ending rework loop of like, well, you know, I tried getting to root cause. I tried looking more systemically and I'm like, eh, it's easier to just fix the mistakes. Right, right, right. And and that futility then I think really impacts people's engagement, right? Because if you feel that sure. there's nothing you can do to improve the situation, then um, you're not, you're, that will affect engagement. It's, it's just, yeah, I'll come in, I'll do my work and, and I, I can't get anything fixed, and right. But it, but it's, a, but it's a, it's a, um, what do you, what do you call? It? It's not a virtual cycle. What's the opposite of a virtual cycle? It's a, it's it, it feeds on itself. Well, you could call it a doom spiral. <laughs> a doom spiral, yeah, a death spiral, right? Right. Yeah. It feeds on itself. So if I feel that I cannot get something fixed, or something, something won't be improved, right? Then I will be less engaged, which means that I would be more likely not to necessarily take care. I may end up making more mistakes or perhaps stop fixing the mistake that I have been fixing. So it's not going, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't help. But the the other side of it then is, is um, the people who are overall responsible for the system. If, how, if they feel that they cannot fix it or it's too hard or they don't have time or they don't have the money um, or whatever, you know, whatever the reason is, then they're also going to start to feel futility. I, I think it, it feeds on itself. It, it, it does. And I think especially when, you know, I think, you know, uh, you know, leaders very often blame individuals um, for systemic problems. So, you know, if if there's low productivity, they might say, oh, well, the workers are lazy. If mistakes are being made, they might say the workers are careless. If, if people aren't speaking up, they might say, oh, the employees don't care or that they're, uh, you know, being cowardly. And I think that's all, I think that's all misdirected. Um, and I think a lot of that is a, a function of, of culture. You know, I've, I've kind of come around to, to believe very strongly that, like, you know, what, what, somebody's choice to speak up or to not speak up isn't a function of of 
courage or character. It's it's really it's a, it's a function of culture. You can take the same person and put them into two different workplaces, and they will behave differently. And uh, you know, there's this thought experiment. I don't know if this has ever happened. Um, let's say somebody has been working uh, for a very long time at the Toyota Georgetown plant in Kentucky, where the culture is one of, uh, if in doubt, pull the and on cord, and you're going to get mm -hmm. a helpful response instead of a, a punishment response. And um, let's say, you know, that that's become deeply ingrained in them. And, you know, that's a function of culture, and it might be aligned with their values of like, yeah, I want to do quality work. I want, you know, I'm, I'm a person who speaks up. And then if, if they had to move, because of family reasons or whatever, and they were to get a job at one of the uh, uh, older Detroit-based automakers, I, I'm guessing the you know, if, if they went into a different culture and they they out of habit pull the and on cord and they get a different response from their leaders, I bet they would learn very quickly, hey, I need this paycheck. Uh, right. Message received. I'm not going to pull the and on cord here. Right. But they look around and there's no button to press <laughs> No, no cord to pull. There might not be a cord in healthcare. Yeah. Like, and it's not even a matter of just physically, but um, conceptually, there's very rarely an and on cord in healthcare. Uh, it's any sort of process to speak up and point out a problem and ask for help and get help very quickly. Uh, that's that's unfortunately rare uh, in hospitals and healthcare. And, and is that exacerbated now by the? the number of people who are temporary floating in and out of healthcare organizations it seems to me that's really gone up since the pandemic. Um, and so I'm curious as to how healthcare organizations are even establishing culture anymore mm. when so many of the people sure. who are working, especially nurses are traveling, um, uh, moving in and out, moving from floor to floor to, to deal with, um, with uh, staffing issues. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the drivers of a lot of these problems is, uh, you know, understaffing. And, and part of the reason then hospitals scramble to bring in um, temporary or, you know, part-time or traveler nurses. But, you know, again, I mean, I think, I mean, you know, culture exists, whether we're intentionally cultivating it or not. You know, culture, I think, is just basically, you know, how, how do we interact with each other? And, you know, I, I, I think take my thought experiment of, you know, an auto worker, I, I, I think that translates uh, to nurses where, um, you know, you're, you're new to an organization, you're going to be working there for a few months. I, I bet you very quickly either get told or see demonstrated what the culture is in that workplace. And again, like, you know, that not all healthcare cultures are going to be exactly the same. There are some that are um, like re re really really aggressive in, in these ways. Mm -hmm. There are some hospitals that have put in essentially an and on cord system to great benefit. You know, the number of reported problems goes up for a while because there's more candid reporting because the environment and the culture is allowing that. And then as you're doing problem solving, the number of um, you know, harms and, and the bad impact starts going down. But I bet if somebody traveled and shifted from, you know, one hospital that was really good about those things and they had built a little bit of habit of, you know, uh, I can speak my mind and I can point out problems and mm -hmm. I can disagree with the doctors or with their nurse manager. And then they go into a new hospital again, they might learn very quickly whether they're they're told about the culture or they just see it or, you know, are, are subjected 
to some of those other behaviors. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, you, I, I, you know, it's interesting, you know, there's one hospital, um, I'm blanking on the name, uh, at, at the moment. Um, you know, there, there are hospitals that have done a lot to reduce nurse turnover. I think that's another thing you shouldn't blame the nurses for. Like, oh, right. we had a lot of turnover. Let's blame those nurses who are willing to jump jobs for another 50 cents an hour. Like, yeah. When people have a workplace that they really love, they're not looking to change jobs for a, right. a small um, pay increase. So, um, I mean, I think, you know, so there are hospitals that have really focused on saying, well, we have our culture and our culture is a strength. You know, I interviewed, uh, he's now retired um, CEO from um, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City, where they said, you know, culture is one of their strategic advantages and differentiators. But back, but back to your question, I, I mean, I, I think people in healthcare could create a culture, even having some travel nurses, but I think you, you have to, you know, part of the onboarding say, well, here are some of the expectations. I think the ideal state would be the expectations are you can ask questions, you can disagree, you can point out problems, you can ask for help and that here, that's all okay. Now, someone might not believe it instantly, but at least you're right. trying to set the expectation. And then hopefully through their own experiences, they they start believing it. But yeah, I mean, and knowing that that somebody coming into that situation for the first time probably would, would be a little trepidatious about it, if that's a word. Um, <laughs> I, I gotta try yeah. this. I gotta step out on this on this ice and see if it holds me up before well, I before I really believe yeah. it. Well, and, and and if I can real quick, you know, within the context of Kinexus, a software company, you know, where I think, you know, we've built um, you know, a very good culture. I've heard that directly from employees, you know, t uh, colleagues who've come in, they're younger, they've worked at one or two other software companies before, and they, they can notice the difference in the culture. And that usually appealed to them during the interviewing process. And, you know, people reflect after a month or two, we've just hired some people recently and they rave about the culture and said, this is so different than where I worked before. And like, you know, there's one colleague in particular who remembered, you know, working um, someplace previous where people did get blamed and yelled at for mistakes. And, and it took some time, you know, to kind of put your guard down and realize, okay, it's, it, if it's not, you know, we'd say safe or safer, I can behave differently. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, um, but that it would take a little while, right? Because because you actually develop reactions, right? If if you're in a in an environment that is not safe, then you you put up your guards, you develop certain reactions or lack of reaction in order to survive the situation, um, and then uh, it would it would take a while. I mean, to to say, okay, it's all right, I can breathe here, and also I can I can point out problems, I yeah. can. I, it's it would be okay if if I did make a mistake and maybe I wouldn't be punished for it. Right. Yeah. 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 So for the book, um, the book came out of out of the podcast, and for the podcast, mm -hmm. you've interviewed over two hundred people, which just amazes me. Um, that the the number of interviews that you that you've done. Um, when you started the podcast. Did you did you have the idea that you would hear the same kinds of things over and over again, or did you expect to hear different things? And what I, actually happened? Well, I mean, at first I wasn't even sure I could find too many people willing to talk about mistakes, you know. <laughs> um, so the first first hypothesis to test would be could could I find 
people that would be willing to come on and, and speak. Um, you know, we, we use words like candidly or vulnerably. You know, my my intent, you know, as I, I, I tell people in advance, it's my intent is not to, you know, to shame or mock or, you know, attack. Like, why, why'd you do that? What's wrong with you? That's not the tone of the podcast at all. Um, you know, people share stories. Um, we talk about the learning and the growth that, that came from it. Sometimes a mistake opens an unexpected door uh, where the mistake, you know, was bad, but it led to something positive. I, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was getting into there. And, um, you know, at least early on, I recognized, you know, I think I, I trying to sort of prep and guide people that, that, that people were telling, you know, pretty vulnerable stories. And mm. like, I'm not asking people, what's your biggest mistake? That's a different question. What's right. your, what's your favorite mistake is very intentionally open-ended and subjective. Every person's going to decide favorite, you know, for, for a different reason. And, you know, I, I wasn't getting answers that were like a bad attempted a job interview question. I'm like, well, what, what's your favorite mistake? And if people were saying things like, well, you know, my mistake was that I just, I worked too hard and I had it all and I was too successful. And now I'm trying to smell the roses or something like that wouldn't be very interesting if it was sort right, of like, right. like a humble brag kind of mistake. Um, but I'm, I'm not getting that from people. Like I'm getting, you know, really interesting stories and great re reflections. And, and some of the guests are able to take a really deep dive into how they're creating, um, you know, a culture of learning from mistakes um, in, in, in their company. So I did start to see some patterns though, in, in terms of the types of answers and um, yeah. And then, you know, uh, March of 2022, I think is when I kind of put a stake in the ground and said, okay, this, I'm, I'm going to do a book. And I, at first I thought, well, it's just, you know, be a nice collection of, of stories from the podcast and that, you know, um, you know, my editor kind of convinced me, well, you know, that I had some things to say for my own experiences, lean and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So the book kind of shifted and evolved a little bit um, over time. And I think that made it, you know, a better book. So there are many, many stories from the podcast guests in there, but that's not the, uh, ex that's not exclusively the source of those stories. Wow. Wow. That's, I, I think it's really interesting when you say that there are people who have having had a mistake that was their favorite mistake that they have taken that and then start to build that culture into their organizations. Mm -hmm. One of the things I was wondering though, as as you're you're talking to people, I think that do you, or do you think that there are people for whom it is less safe mm. to talk about mistakes, um, to um, you know, to admit. Mm -hmm. That you know something that something they did or a circumstance they were they were in yeah. didn't go well. Um, yeah, there's. I mean, I think there's. I mean, I'm I'm not a psychologist. I'm an engineer, but I think my understanding of trying uh, to yeah. study this and talk to people there there are, you know, as much as I talk about culture and external barriers, there there can be what we might call internal barriers mm. to admitting a mistake. Things that might have been imprinted on us during childhood or school or, you know, or upbringing. So there, I mean, there's probably, you know, there's, there's that variable um, is, as well, but that, you know, that's, I don't know, like socialization as opposed to 
courage or innate character. I right. mean, I think people might be taught, you know, different stages in life for their career that that speaking up or making mistakes is is going to be um, punished. There there are some other dynamics though where I've, I've had some guests, and and this has been helpful for me as um, you know uh, a, a middle aged white straight man who you know. Um, doesn't have the burden of, you know, some guests have talked about, you know, it's different as a woman or it's different as a person of color where like, I think like I have the privilege of if, if I admit a mistake or do something wrong, I don't think it reflects on all other middle-aged mm -hmm. white yeah. straight men, you know, um, where I, you know, I have had some conversations where um, if somebody is in, um, you know, uh, you know, different circumstances, they they may be afraid of, well, if I make a mistake, this is going to reflect that badly on all the other black people in the organization, or the other women. And so, um, you know, that's where I, I try not to be dogmatic, or I certainly try not to assume that everybody else has the same privilege. And, and, and that's why I try to never frame it in terms of like, well, you should speak up, or you must yeah. Speak up. I think that's unfair to people. It could be unfair, um, you know, to other people who are, you know, more like me. I, I mean, what are your thoughts on this, Bella? Well, I, I just think it's it's really incumbent then on leadership to reflect on who they make it safe for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, is it safe for? And I, I remember a presentation that I saw from, um, uh, I think it's Zuckerberg Hospital in San Francisco, mm -hmm. where they they had, uh, they brought the janitor in, right? And the they they asked they were talking about cleaning rooms, and the question everyone was talking about, you know, how how clean can you get the room, and and infection control was involved, and you know. Uh, all kinds of people. Um, and uh, finally, somebody said, well, maybe we should talk to the people who actually clean the rooms. Right. Right. But right. It's good well, lean thinking. Yeah. The good lean thinking, right? I mean, it's simple, but, you know, they are were mostly Hispanic. Um, some of them, I think, I'm not sure how, you know, how well they spoke English. And mm -hmm. they certainly saw themselves, I believe, much less able to speak up mm -hmm. about problems. Sure. that they saw and and i think it's really important for leadership to be clear-eyed about well where are these uh, in our class divisions in your organization mm -hmm. who is you know who are the good people who are the people that that who are not noticed right yeah um yeah the, well that i came from there was always a big difference and uh, in people's mind between people who are in quote unquote operations mm -hmm. that is actually getting work done and strategists um, people who thought about what work should be done or how yeah. it should be done right and so when when a strategist type person would make a suggestion they were often listened to when mm -hmm. an operations person was listened to was was made a suggestion they weren't always listened to right yeah. Because yeah. because there was, and I believe there was some idea about the difference in intellectual capacity, frankly. Mm. That's what people mm. were thinking. Well, you know, if I've got a PhD or an MD, I'm way smarter than this person over here who's moving this thing along the yeah. process. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so more likely to be women, more likely to be people of color, more likely mm -hmm. to be um, you know, not the, you know, not the people yeah. who are usually 
at the top of the organization. Yeah. So I think it's really important at a time when DEI is sort of being, um, in some cases, moved out of organizations um, for for leaders to look and say, what in my culture makes it hard for people to speak up? Yeah. And I think there's connections now between, you know, lean and the Toyota production system to what you're saying there and what I'm advocating for, um, you know, the, 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 the notion of respect for people that we should respect mm-hmm. everybody in the workplace. Um, people sometimes confuse educational attainment with intelligence. That's not all like people in the front lines are often very smart, very creative. They know their work. They are best positioned to participate in the continuous improvement of their work. You know, the, the, the ideals of, of Kaizen of, you know, engaging everybody everywhere, every day. That's not just a pipe dream. That's very realistic and practical. If uh, leaders don't have their own mental barriers to, to, to acknowledging that, or even recognizing um, that it's true. But no, I think there's, there's a lot of, like you said, um, you know, professional privilege, and hierarchy. Um, I, I think the one lesson and takeaway from that, I'll bring it back to Kinexus for a minute. You know, part of leading creating a culture is leaders leading the way. So the senior leadership team at Kinexus, including the CEO Greg Jacobson as a co-founder, speaks candidly about mistakes he's made, times when he was wrong. Now he has less to lose, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like he, he may feel you know, some sense of shame or feel like it might hurt his reputation. Actually, it doesn't. It actually helps, um, I think, in terms of reputation. And it helps with the culture because, you know, let's say a CEO could get punished by a board, you know, for admitting a mistake. There may be public ridicule or embarrassment for admitting a mistake. But generally, people higher up in the organization have less to be fearful of externally. They might have pride and other factors internally. Um, that prevent them from from speaking up. I think that's where the the Toyota phrase "leading with humility," you know, is so important. When when leaders are able to lead by example, modeling those behaviors, that that opens the door for their employees to follow their lead. And then when that gets rewarded by leaders instead of being punished, now you start getting into more of that virtuous cycle of strengthening, right. building, right. and sustaining that culture. And it takes constant vigilance. It's yeah. You can't. You can't say, "Well, I've done it. I've done culture. No. Culture's over now." Yeah, we're well, going to th- move that's on where to it, the next thing. It leads to um, uh, a little bit of an awkward subtitle: cultivating a culture of learning and innovation for the book. Because um, I'm not really a gardener. I'm not a farmer. But the word "cultivating" seems to suggest a sort of never-ending journey. You cultivate a garden. You don't implement a garden. And right. It, oh, I love that. Yeah. You don't you, implement a guy. You, you, yeah. you don't buy culture. You don't install culture. Uh, I think it, it, you know, you go back to the root words of culture and cultivate their, their similar um, origin there. But yeah, I think cultivating is a good word to use. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Mark, I wanted to ask you about about something else, uh, something a little, a little bit more personal, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you shared recently, uh, maybe a, a, several months ago, um, on LinkedIn that you had um, had received a diagnosis of um, ADHD right. um, as as an adult, which mm-hmm. is um, 
I think quite an adventure in and of itself just to get the yeah. diagnosis. And I'm very curious about that um, for, for a number of reasons, um, uh, one of which is sort of the connection between ADHD and the kind of structure that a mm. lean a culture provides. And I would just, could you start anywhere with that and tell us whatever sure. you would like to tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you a little bit of that journey, and then maybe you can help me flesh out, you know, what, what are the implications related to lean? So like you said, and this was um, over a year ago, year and a half ago, really. Um, you know, I was struggling with some things at, at work. And when you say as an adult, I mean, you know, like, yeah, I was 49 years old at the time. So um, I, you know, I think had, I, you know, I was having some, some struggles at work, um, things that you associate with ADHD, like attention, attentiveness. And, you know, as I kind of, you know, studied ADHD, I agree with people that say it's a little bit misnamed. It's not attention deficit. It's more like misdirected attention, not being able to direct your attention to where you need to, or even sometimes want to direct it that could attention. Be, it could be hyper-focus on something when something right. else needs attention, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Hyper-focus on the wrong thing. Um, and then, you know, I would, there, there were sometimes this was not related to Kinexus. This was more related to another organization that I was um, working under, under their banner of, you know, um, you know, uh, struggling with, you know, getting upset about things and, and not even like just like yelling and screaming or flying, but, just, you know, getting upset and having trouble hmm. letting th those things go. And in a couple of cases, like, you know, sending an email or a text that wasn't really well advised or or helpful and so you know and i'll share a little bit you know my pathway here so you know i reached out through an eap program that I had access to to talk to a counselor i wasn't sent there <laughs> to the counselor uh, uh, yeah. i pulled the end on cord on myself and and said well let me let me talk to me about this and you know i think i'd been in denial uh you know about some of these things for for a long time and you know, I think the faulty um, countermeasures that don't work would include saying like, well, you need to just try harder. And, you know, and and then, you know, kind of making myself feel bad. And, and I think the anxiety about not paying attention just made that all worse. And so I got a diagnosis of ADHD. And from what I you know, I made a big effort to try to learn about this of like, well, it's something that's different in your brain. It's, it's not, it's not your fault any more than somebody being type one diabetic, you know, oh, you would yeah, say that's their fault or, or even yeah. type two diabetes. My, I, I'm not trying to say that's somebody's um, fault, but things you're, you're born with, you know, basically. Um, and that there, you know, the con the one common, you know, thread, it seems in ADHD, it's more a matter of like impulse control. Like, oh, okay, that impulse of what are you working on, the impulse of what are you paying attention to, the impulse of how you might react um, to something. So, you know, I was trying to work on that, um, including, uh, you know, trying a medication countermeasure. And what I was told was, you know, medication is very effective. Sometimes people still need continued counseling, especially if you've been feeling bad about this for a long time, you know, to kind of process and talk through some of that. Um, so then coming into early 2023, like, you know, still kind of struggling, you're trying to dial in medication and, and, and doses. I thought, well, okay. I remember they told me you, you might still need more counseling. So I went and found uh, a psychologist and 
<laughs> here's where the story gets interesting. I haven't talked about this uh, or written about it anywhere, but I, I don't mind sharing. Um, so there's there's the symptoms, if you will. There's the what they call executive function symptoms and the problem statement, if you will. It doesn't tell you exactly what the cause or the root cause is. And there's no blood test or brain scan mm. for any of this, right? So um, she put me through a much more intensive hours long battery of different tests and assessments. So her one takeaway was, well, the counselor that you talked to last year, like what, 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 what they had you use, that was a screening tool. That really should have been the starting point for deeper evaluation that she did. So that oh, I, oh, mm. I've learned screening tool versus full diagnostic tool. And then, um, you know, so I mean, then basically, like, the, I think the key takeaway was she was like, I, these these issues um, are, 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 in her opinion, not caused by ADHD. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, you're hearing this. Wow. Time, I wow. So we didn't prep uh, that that part of it. So stop taking that that ADHD medication. I don't think it was having a great positive effect. I don't think it was having huge negative side effects, but, um, you know, we stopped that and, you know, she thinks, well, th there can be, you know, uh, different causes of anxiety that manifest itself in the attentiveness issue or the way you react to things issue. So we're kind of still exploring different wow. causes and different, different countermeasures. Uh, that, that is so interesting because I think there's a lot of conversation about that particular diagnosis right now. And, and I think between social media and some of the um, societal changes we've had since, mm -hmm. um, since COVID came mm -hmm. that um, a lot of people are having trouble with focus or focusing on the mm -hmm. wrong things and, and um, anxiety Um and there's a lot of things in the world uh, kind of causing yeah, increased, make, yeah, making uh, us anxious, yeah, anxiety. Um, so I, you know, I mean, I've I've tried to educate myself about ADHD, and you know, uh, back to your question of, you know, I mean, I think there there may there may be times where lean practices provide some structure mm -hmm. that could be helpful for somebody with ADHD. You know, deciding what do I do next? What do I need to get done today? That could be helpful. I think, yeah, it's, I, I mean, this is probably a longer conversation, but certainly um, some coaching that I've done with, with someone who does have a, a diagnosis of, of, of ADHD, I found that asking the question, what do you want to do next is absolutely paralyzing. Yeah, that is not an easy question for someone with ADHD to mm -hmm. answer because what they see is there's a wide variety. If you ask them to test a hypothesis, there's a wide variety of ways to test a hypothesis. And now I have absolutely no idea how to pick one. So all of mm -hmm. those tools that help us narrow down and focus are potentially helpful. Mm -hmm. But too many, you know, too much of that can also provoke anxiety. Sure. And, um, and I'm just really interested in like, you know, when, when we practice, you know, lean thinking and lean tools, I I do think that there is sort of a neurotypical, there is an idea of a neurotypical brain behind 
some of the things that we do or that we ask other people to do and sure. not everybody's right. going to fit into that i think i think there's more of the yeah. edges of lean to explore around that and how we make um lean culture available yeah. to more people yeah because and, and i think the estimates are you know that you know these differences in the adhd brain exist in somewhere between five to ten percent of the population and it's it's just you know there's a lot of people suggesting it's very underdiagnosed especially in for, women for different reasons and different you know when I, you know i was a, a child of you know elementary school and middle school the 1980s i don't know how much probably then it was been called add um how much how often that was really being diagnosed or i don't know like you know i talked to my my mother you know about this and you know, she was a school teacher elementary school um, you know, through, I don't know, 20, probably up until about 10 years ago. So she was working with uh, teaching a lot of students who were diagnosed and probably on ADHD medication. And she, you know, I don't know, she was like, I, you having experienced what she experienced, she was like, I don't think you, I don't think you had ADHD. Mm. And maybe, I guess she turned out to be right. But, but again, like, you know, the, the, the psychologist I'm talking to is not denying that there are issues or symptoms or mm -hmm. problems, you know, it's just a matter of trying to figure out in, in this, you, you can't do it in a very direct way. Like one thing I, I think I learned about ADHD um, is really the way you confirm a diagnosis is by testing the countermeasure. <laughs> People who have ADHD respond well to ADHD medications and, you know, where, where people abuse you know, I've, I've heard stories of like, this is uh, somebody whose child was in medical school, you know, uh, this is not my firsthand experience by any means, but, you know, uh, believe the story of like how many medical school students were to help them study without a diagnosis. So, you know, there are people who abuse these drugs. Um, so, you know, again, like I, maybe I'm in some you know middle ground where, again, I don't think the medications um, had any ill effect. And to anyone who fears like, oh, well, these things are addictive. I, I stopped taking the medication on the psychologist's advice. And that, that was not, that was not an issue. I never felt an inkling of addiction to it. So good, good. yeah. Mark, this has been a great conversation. I have, we have a couple more questions for you. Okay. Uh, the first is, um, Tell us where people can find you. You're all over the place, but what's the best way for people to find you? Um, yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is probably the social media platform where I'm most active and and people can find me there. Um, just, you know, search Mark Graven. Um, easy enough to find online. Uh, my my website is markgraven.com. Uh, the the website, for the, the website, if, you know, G-R-A-B-A-N. It's a short name, easily misspelled. Uh, mispronounced systemic problem there. Uh, and then the book's website is mistakesbook.com. Uh, it's available, you know, people can find it. Most books nowadays are, are bought uh, on Amazon. It's available on some other platforms, but it's available uh, paperback, hardcover, Kindle, audiobook formats. Um, if people want, you know, the non-Kindle ebook version, that's available in different platforms. Uh, audiobook can be found uh, primarily Amazon, Audible, and Apple. Apple books. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Mark, what's your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Well, I, it's a great question. And yeah, ne neither of us could remember what I had said last time I was on the episode. <laughs> I didn't go back 
to check. But you know, I think based on our conversation here today, maybe two things briefly, if, if I may. I know you said one. I think one is related, and I've learned this from you know these people at Kinexus who have worked at other places and then came in the Kinexus. And you know, I think they've learned. And I, I guess thinking back, I learned the same thing. Like when you're interviewing for a job, you need to be interviewing the company and its leaders wow. as much as they are interviewing you and be prepared to ask questions about culture. And I think some of the questions related to psychological safety and um, learning from mistakes, like, you know, given the opportunity, who knows what kind of answer you would get, you could ask, you could ask um, you know, tell me about a time when an employee made a mistake and how did you and the company address that? And if the story is about blame and punishment, maybe you need to run the other direction mm -hmm. or keep, keep interviewing. I think that is terrific advice. That, that really is. Yeah. 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 And then I think I the second, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the second one? Okay. So I think the second one is like, you know, if anyone um, is is even wondering, you know, do do they perhaps have ADHD? Are they um, suffering from, I don't know if that's the right, well, are they facing um, anxiety or, or depression? Is this run-of-the-mill sadness that happens to everybody? Or is it is it something um, worth seeing a, a mental health professional or even talking to your primary care physician or go through your company's e EAP program? I think the lesson learned is if in doubt, talk to somebody. If, if you're even wondering, it, I think it's worth talking um, to a professional about it. And then there's no harm in that. Um, hopefully there's no shame. There's there's still stigma around mm. these things in a way that somebody, there, there wouldn't be stigma about a broken arm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there shouldn't be. I agree. But again, we think of like there's 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 external societal and cultural barriers. And then there's sometimes our own internal barriers of, of you know, not wanting to not wanting to say something or not wanting to ask for help. And it's the same thing we've just been talking about. Right. It's 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 not that it's a mistake, because however you feel, that's not a mistake, but just that just that ability to feel that you're in a safe place. To, uh, mm -hmm. to find that safe place where you can talk about what you need to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And that safe place could be, you know, hopefully the workplace, hopefully and more likely to be, you know, with uh, with family and, and friends. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Mark Graven, it's such a pleasure to have you visit again to the Edges oh. of Lean. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Bella. Thank you for the questions and, and the, you know, prompting I you know I think a a discussion that that as 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 appropriate for your podcast is on on the edges of lean but I think very well connected to lean I hope. <laughs> right. All right, thanks. This is Bella Engelbach and I'd like to thank Mark Graben for being my guest at the Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? What mistakes do you want to make? We would love to hear from you. You can find Mark at markgraben.com or on LinkedIn. His book's website is mistakesbook.com and find his podcast at leancommunicators.com. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. 
And check out all my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com, where you will find lots of great new content every week. The Ages of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelberg with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.